Hi, and thanks for joining me for a continuation of B.F. Skinner's Science and Human Behavior. And we are up to section three, and section three is titled The Individual as a Whole. And we are on chapter 15, which is titled Self-Control. Subtitle, The Self-Determination of Conduct. Implicit in a functional analysis is the notion of control. When we discover an independent variable which can be controlled, we discover a means of controlling the behavior which is a function of it. This fact is important for theoretical purposes. Proving the validity of a functional relationship by an actual demonstration of the effect of one variable upon another is the heart of experimental science. The practice enables us to dispense with many troublesome statistical techniques in testing the importance of variables. The practical implications are probably even greater. An analysis of the techniques through which behavior may be manipulated shows the kind of technology which is emerging as the science advances, and it points up the considerable degree of control which is currently exerted. The problems raised by the control of human behavior obviously can no longer be avoided by refusing to recognize the possibility of control. Later sections of this book will consider these practical implications in more detail. In section four, for example, in an analysis of what is generally called social behavior, we shall see how one organism utilizes the basic processes of behavior to control another. The result is particularly impressive when the individual is under the concerted control of a group. Our basic processes are responsible for the procedures through which the ethical group controls the behavior of each of its members. An even more effective control is exerted by such well-defined agencies as government, religion, psychotherapy, economics, and education. Certain key questions concerning such control will be considered in Section 5. The general issue of control in human affairs will be summarized in Section 6. First, however, we must consider the possibility that the individual may control his own behavior. A common objection to a picture of, of the behaving organism such as we have so far presented runs somewhat as follows. In emphasizing the controlling power of external variables, we have left the organism itself in a peculiarly helpless position. Its behavior appears to be simply a repertoire, a vocabulary of action, each item of which becomes more or less probable as the environment changes. It is true that variables may be arranged in complex patterns, but this fax does not appreciably modify the picture, for the emphasis is still upon behavior, not upon the behavior. Yet, to a considerable extent, an individual does appear to shape his own destiny. He is often able to do something about the variables affecting him. Some degree of self-determination of conduct is usually recognized in the creative behavior of the artist and scientist, in the self-exploratory behavior of the writer, and in the self-discipline of the ascetic. Humbler versions of self-determination are more familiar. The individual chooses between alternative courses of action. 
thinks through a problem while isolated from the relevant environment and guards his health or his position in society through the exercise of self-control. Any comprehensive account of human behavior must, of course, embrace the facts referred to in statements of this sort, but we can achieve this without abandoning our program. When a man controls himself, chooses a course of action, thinks out the solution to a problem, or strives toward an increase in self-knowledge, he is behaving. He controls himself precisely as he would control the behavior of anyone else, through the manipulation of variables of which behavior is a function. His behavior in so doing is a proper object of analysis, and eventually it must be accounted for with variables lying outside the individual himself. It is the purpose of section three to analyze how the individual acts to alter the variables of which other parts of his behavior are functions, to distinguish among the various cases which arise in terms of the processes involved, and to account for the behavior which achieves control just as we account for behavior of any other kind. The present chapter concerns the processes involved in self-control taking that term in close to its traditional sense, while chapter 16 concerns behavior which would traditionally be described as creative thinking. The two sets of techniques are different because in self-control the individual can identify the behavior to be controlled, while in creative thinking he cannot. The variables which the individual utilizes in manipulating his behavior in this way are not always accessible to others, and this has led to great misunderstanding. It has often been concluded, for example, that self-discipline and thinking take place in a non-physical inner world and that neither activity is properly described as behavior at all. We may simplify the analysis by considering examples of self-control and thinking in which the individual manipulates external variables, but we shall need to complete the picture by discussing the status of private events in a science of behavior. Chapter 17. A purely private event would have no place in a study of behavior or perhaps in any science, but events which are, for the moment at least, accessible only to the individual himself often occur as links in chains of otherwise public events and they must then be considered. In self-control and creative thinking, where the individual is largely engaged in manipulating his own behavior, this is likely to be the case. When we say that a man controls himself, we must specify who is controlling whom. When we say that he knows himself, we must distinguish between the subject and the object of the verb. Evidently, selves are multiple and hence not to be identified with the biological organism. But if this is so, what are they? What are their dimensions in a science of behavior? To what extent, uh, to what extent is a self an integrated personality or organism? How can one self act upon another? The interlocking systems of responses which account for self-control and thinking make it possible to answer questions of this sort satisfactorily, as we shall see in chapter 18. We can do this more conveniently, however, when the principal data are at hand. Meanwhile, the term self will be used in a less rigorous way. Self-control. 
The individual often comes to control part of his own behavior when a response has conflicting consequences, when it leads to both positive and negative reinforcement. Drinking alcoholic beverages, for example, is often followed by a condition of unusual confidence in which one is more successfully socially and in which one forgets responsibilities, anxieties, and other troubles. Since this is positively reinforcing, it increases the likelihood that drinking will take place on future occasions. But there are other consequences. The physical illness of the hangover and the possible disastrous effects of overconfident or irresponsible behavior, which are negatively reinforced reinforcing and, when contingent upon behavior, represent a form of punishment. If punishment were simply the reverse of reinforcement, the two might combine to produce an intermediate tendency to drink, but we have seen that this is not the case. When a similar occasion arises, the same or an increased tendency to drink will prevail, but the occasion as well as the early stages of drinking will generate conditioned aversive stimuli and emotional responses to them which we speak of as shame or guilt. The emotional responses may have some deterrent effect in weakening behavior as by spoiling the mood. A more important effect, however, is that any behavior which weakens the behavior of drinking is automatically reinforced by the resulting reduction in aversive stimulation. We have discussed the behavior of simply doing something else, which is reinforced because it displaces punishable behavior. But there are other possibilities. The organism may make the punished response less probable by altering the variables of which it is a function. Any behavior which succeeds in doing this will automatically be reinforced. We call such behavior self-control. The positive and negative consequences generate two responses which are related to each other in a special way. One response, the controlling response, affects variables in such a way as to change the probability of the other, the controlled response. The controlling response may manipulate any of the variables of which the controlled response is a function. Hence, there are a good many different forms of self-control. In general, it is possible to point to parallels in which the same techniques are employed in controlling the behavior of others. A fairly exhaustive survey at this point will illustrate the process of self-control and at the same time serve to summarize the kind of control to be emphasized in the chapters which follow. Techniques of control, physical restraint and physical aid. We commonly control behavior through physical restraint. With locked doors, fences, and jails, we limit the space in which people move. With straitjackets, gags, and arm braces, we limit the movement of parts of the body. The individual controls his own behavior in the same way. He claps his hand over his mouth to keep himself from laughing or coughing or to stifle a verbal response which is seen at the last moment to be a bad break. A child psychologist has suggested that a mother who wishes to keep from nagging her child should seal her own lips with adhesive tape. The individual may jam his hands into his pocket to prevent fidgeting or nail biting or hold his nose to keep from breathing when underwater. He may present himself at the door of an institution for incarceration to control his own criminal or psychotic behavior. He may cut his right hand off lest it offended him. 
In each of these examples, we identify a controlling response, which imposes some degree of physical restraint upon a response to be controlled. To explain the existence and strength of the controlling behavior, we point to the reinforcing circumstances which arise when the response has been controlled. Clapping the hand over the mouth is reinforced and will occur again under similar circumstances because it reduces the aversive stimulation generated by the cough or the incipient bad break. In the sense of chapter 7, the controlling response avoids the negatively reinforcing consequences of the controlled response. The aversive consequences of a bad break are supplied by a social environment. The aversive consequences of breathing underwater do not require the mediation of others. Another form of control through physical restraint is simply to move out of the situation in which the behavior to be controlled may take place. The parent avoids trouble by taking an aggressive child away from other children and the adult controls himself the same way. Unable to control his anger, he simply walks away. This may not control the whole emotional pattern, but it does restrain those features which are likely to have serious consequences. Suicide is another form of self-control. Obviously, a man does not kill himself because he has previously escaped from an aversive situation by doing so. As we have already seen, suicide is not a form of behavior to which the notion of frequency of response can be applied. If it occurs, the components of the behavior must have been strengthened separately. Unless this happens under circumstances in which frequency is an available datum, we cannot say meaningfully that a man is likely or unlikely to kill himself, nor can the individual say this of himself. Chapter 17. Some instances of suicide, but by no means all, follow the pattern of cutting off one's right hand that it may not offend one. The military agent taken by the enemy may use this method to keep himself from divulging secrets of state. A variation on this mode of control consists of removing the situation, so to speak, rather than the individual. A government stops inflationary spending by heavy taxation, by removing the money or credit, which is a condition for the purchase of goods. A man arranges to control the behavior of his spendthrift heir by setting up a trust fund. Non-coeducational institutions attempt to control certain kinds of sexual behavior by making the opposite sex inaccessible. The individual may use the same techniques in controlling himself. He may leave some of his pocket money at home to avoid spending it, or he may drop coins into a piggy bank from which it is difficult to withdraw, withdraw them. He may put his own money in trust for himself. H.G. Wells, Mr. Polly, used a similar procedure to distribute his funds over a walking trip. He would mail all but a pound note to himself at a village some distance along his route. Arriving at the village, he would call at the post office, remove a pound note, and readdress the balance to himself at a later point. In a converse technique, we increase the probability of a desirable form of behavior by supplying physical aid. We facilitate human behavior, make it possible, or expand and amplify its consequences with various sorts of equipment, tools, and machines. When the problem of self-control is to generate a given response, we alter our own behavior in the same way by obtaining favorable equipment, making funds readily available, and so on. Changing the stimulus. Insofar as the preceding techniques 
operate through physical aid or restraint, they are not based upon a behavioral process. There are associated processes, however, which may be analyzed more accurately in terms of stimulation. Aside from making a response possible or impossible, we may create or eliminate the occasion for it. To do so, we manipulate either an eliciting or a discriminative stimulus. When a drug manufacturer reduces the probability that a nauseous medicine will be regurgitated by enclosing it in tasteless capsules or by sugarcoating the pill, he is simply removing a stimulus which elicits unwanted responses. The same procedure is available in the control of one's own reflexes. We swallow a medicine quickly and chase it with a glass of water to reduce comparable stimuli. We remove discriminative stimuli when we turn away from a stimulus which induces aversive action. We may forcibly look away from a wallpaper design which evokes the compulsive behavior of tracing geometrical patterns. We may close doors or draw curtains to eliminate distracting stimuli or achieve the same effect by closing our eyes or putting our fingers in our ears. We may put a box of candy out of sight to avoid overeating. This sort of self-control is described as avoiding temptation, especially when the aversive consequences have been arranged by society. It is the principle of get thee behind me, Satan. We also present stimuli because of the responses they elicit or make more probable in our own behavior. We rid ourselves of poisonous or indigestible food with an emetic, a substance which generates stimuli which elicit vomiting, we facilitate stimulation when we wear eyeglasses or hearing aids. We arrange a discriminative stimulus to encourage our own behavior at a later date when we tie a string on our finger or make an entry in a date book to serve as the occasion for action at an appropriate time. Sometimes we present stimuli because the resulting behavior displaces behavior to be controlled. We distract ourselves just as we distract others from a situation which generates undesirable behavior. We amplify stimuli generated by our own behavior when we use a mirror to acquire good carriage or to master a difficult dance step or study moving pictures of our own behavior to improve our skill in a sport or listen to phonograph recordings of our own speech to improve pronunciation or delivery. Conditioning and extinction provide other ways of changing the effectiveness of stimuli. We arrange for the future effect of a stimulus upon ourselves by pairing it with other stimuli, and we extinguish reflexes by exposing ourselves to conditioned stimuli when they are not accompanied by reinforcement. If we blush, sweat, or exhibit some other emotional response under certain circumstances because of an unfortunate episode, we may expose ourselves to these circumstances under more favorable conditions in order that extinction may take place depriving and satiating. An impecunious person may make the most of an invitation to dinner by skipping lunch and thus creating a high state of deprivation in which he will eat a great deal. Conversely, he may partially satiate himself with a light lunch before going to dinner in order to make the strength of his ingestive behavior less conspicuous. When a guest prepares himself for an assiduous host by drinking a large amount of water before going to a cocktail party, he uses satiation as a measure of control. Another use is less obvious. In Women in Love, 
D.H. Lawrence describes a practice of self-control as follows. A very great doctor told me that to cure oneself of a bad habit, one should force oneself to do it when one would not do it, make oneself do it, and then the habit would disappear. If you bite your nails, for example, then you, when you don't want to bite your nails, bite them, make yourself bite them, and you would find the habit was broken. This practice falls within the present class if we regard the behavior of deliberately biting one's fingernails or biting a piece of celluloid or similar material as automatically satiating. The practice obviously extends beyond what are usually called bad habits. For example, if we are unable to work at our desk because of a conflicting tendency to go for a walk, a brisk walk may, so may solve the problem through satiation. A variation on this practice is to satiate one form of behavior by engaging in a somewhat similar form. Heavy exercise is often recommended in the control of sexual behavior on the assumption that exercise has enough in common with sexual behavior to produce a sort of transferred satiation. The effect is presumed to be due to topographical overlap rather than sheer exhaustion. A similar overlap may account for a sort of transferred deprivation. The practice of leaving the table while still hungry has been recommended as a way of generating good work habits. Presumably for the same reason, the vegetarian may be especially alert and highly efficient because he is, in a sense, always hungry. Self-deprivation in the field of sex has been asserted to have, a valuable, to have valuable consequences in distantly related fields, for example, in encouraging literary or artistic achievements. Possibly the evidence is weak, if the effect does not occur, we have so much the less to explain. Manipulating emotional conditions. We induce emotional changes in ourselves for purposes of control. Sometimes this means simply presenting or removing stimuli. For example, we reduce or eliminate unwanted emotional reactions by going away for a change of scene, that is, by removing stimuli which have acquired the power to evoke emotional reactions because of events which have occurred in connection with them. We sometimes prevent emotional behavior by eliciting incom incompatible responses with appropriate stimuli, as when we bite our tongue to keep from laughing on a solemn occasion. We also control the predispositions, which must be distinguished from emotional responses, Chapter 10. A master of ceremonies on a television program predisposes his studio audience towards laughter before going on the air, possibly by telling jokes which are not permissible on the air. The same procedure is available in self-control. We get ourselves into a good mood before a dull or trying appointment to increase the probability that we shall behave in a socially acceptable fashion. Before asking the boss for a raise, we screw our courage to the sticking place by rehearsing a history of injustice. We reread an insulting letter just before answering it in order to generate the emotional behavior which will make the answer more easily written and more effective. We also engender strong emotional states in which undesirable behavior is unlikely or impossible. A case in point is the practice described vulgarly as scaring the hell out of someone. 
This refers almost literally to a method of controlling strongly punished behavior by reinstating stimuli which have accompanied punishment. We use the same technique when we suppress our own behavior by rehearsing past punishments or by repeating proverbs which warn of the wages of sin. We reduce the extent of an emotional reaction by delaying it, for example, by counting 10 before acting in anger. We get the same effect through the process of adaptation described in chapter 10, when we gradually bring ourselves into contact with disturbing stimuli. We may learn to handle snakes without fear by beginning with dead or drug snakes of the least disturbing sort and gradually moving on to livelier and more frightening kinds. Using aversive stimulation. When we set an alarm clock, we arrange for a strongly aversive stimulus from which we can escape only by arousing ourselves. By putting the clock across the room, we make certain that the behavior of escape will fully awaken us. We condition aversive reactions in ourselves by pairing stimuli in appropriate ways. For example, by using the cures for the tobacco or alcohol habits already described. We also control ourselves by creating verbal stimuli which have an effect upon us because of past aversive consequences paired with them by other people. A simple command is an aversive stimulus, a threat specifying the action which will bring escape. In getting out of bed on a cold morning, the simple repetition of the command, get up, may surprisingly lead to action. The verbal response is easier than getting up and easily takes precedence over it, but the reinforcing contingencies established by the verbal community may prevail. In a sense, the individual obeys himself. Continued use of this technique may lead to a finer discrimination between commands issued by oneself and by others, which may interfere with the result. We prepare aversive stimuli which will control our future behavior when we make a resolution. This is essentially a prediction concerning our own behavior. By making it in the presence of people who supply aversive stimulation when a prediction is not fulfilled, we arrange consequences which are likely to strengthen the behavior resolved upon. Only by behaving as predicted can we escape the aversive consequences of breaking our resolution. As we shall see later, the aversive stimulation which leads us to keep the resolution may eventually be supplied automatically by our own behavior. The resolution may then be effective even in the absence of other people. Drugs. We use drugs which simulate the effect of other variables in self-control. Through the, the use of anesthetics, analgesics, and soporifics, we reduce painful or distracting stimuli which cannot otherwise be altered easily. Appetizers and aphrodisiacs are sometimes used in the belief that they duplicate the effects of deprivation in the fields of hunger and sex, respectively. Other drugs are used for the opposite effects. The conditioned aversive stimuli in guilt are counteracted more or less effectively with alcohol. Typical patterns of euphoric behavior are generated by morphine and related drugs and to a lesser extent by caffeine and nicotine. Operant conditioning. The place of operant reinforcement in self-control is not clear.
In one sense, all reinforcements are self-administered since a response may be regarded as producing its reinforcement, but reinforcing one's own behavior is more than this. It is also more than simply generating circumstances under which a given type of behavior is characteristically reinforced, for example, by associating with friends who reinforce only good behavior. This is simply a chain of responses, an early member of which, associating with a particular friend, is strong because it leads to the reinforcement of a later member, the good behavior. Self-reinforcement of operant behavior presupposes that the individual has it in his power to obtain reinforcement but does not do so until a particular response has been emitted. This might be the case if a man denied himself all social contacts until he has finished a particular job. Something of this sort unquestionably happens, but, it is, but is it operant reinforcement? It is certainly roughly parallel to the procedure in conditioning the behavior of another person, but it must be remembered that the individual may at any moment drop the work in hand and obtain the reinforcement. We have to account for his not doing so. It may be that such indulgent behavior has been punished, say, with disapproval, except when a piece of work has just been completed. The indulgent behavior, which therefore generates strong aversive stimulation, except at such a time. The individual finishes the work in order to indulge himself free of guilt. Chapter 12. The ultimate question is whether the consequence has any strengthening effect upon the behavior which precedes it. Is the individual more likely to do a similar piece of work in the future? It would not be surprising if he were not, although we must agree that he has arranged a sequence of events in which certain behavior has been followed by a reinforcing event. A similar question arises as to whether one can extinguish one's own behavior. Simply emitting a response which is not reinforced is not self-control, nor is behavior which simply brings the individual into circumstances under which a particular form of behavior will go unreinforced. Self-extinction seems to mean that a controlling response must arrange the lack of consequence. The individual must step in to break the connection between response and reinforcement. This appears to be done when, for example, a television set is put out of order so that the response of turning the switch is extinguished. But the extinction here is trivial. The primary, the primary effect is the removal of a source of stimulation punishment. Self-punishment raises the same question. An individual may stimulate himself aversively as in self-flagellation, but punishment is not merely aversive stimulation. It is aversive stimulation which is contingent upon a given response. Can the individual arrange this contingency? It is not self-punishment simply to engage in behavior which is punished or to seek out circumstances in which certain behavior is punished. The individual appears to punish himself when, having recently engaged in a given sort of behavior, he injures himself. Behavior of this sort has been said to show a need for punishment, but we can account for it in another way if, in stimulating himself aversively, the individual escapes from an even more aversive condition of guilt. Chapter 12. There are other variations in the use of aversive self-stimulation. A man concerned with reducing his weight may draw his belt up a given notch and allow it to stay there in spite of a strong aversive effect. 
This may directly increase the conditioned and unconditioned aversive stimuli generated in the act of overeating and may provide for an automatic reinforcement for eating with restraint. But we must not overlook the fact that a very simple response, loosening the belt, will bring escape from the same aversive stimulation. If this behavior is not forthcoming, it is because it has been followed by even more aversive consequences arranged by society or by a physician, a sense of guilt or a fear of illness or death. The ultimate question of aversive self-stimulation is whether a practice of this sort shows the effect which would be generated by the same stimulation arranged by others. Doing something else. One technique of self-control which has no parallel in the control of others is based upon the principle of prepotency. The individual may keep himself from engaging in behavior which leads to punishment by energetically engaging in something else. A simple example is avoiding flinching by a violent response of holding still. Holding still is not simply not flinching. It is a response which, if executed strongly enough, is prepotent over the flinching response. This is close to the control exercised by others when they generate incompatible behavior. But where another person can do this only by arranging external variables, the individual appears to generate the behavior, so to speak, simply by executing it. A familiar example is talking about something else in order to avoid a particular topic. Escape from the aversive stimulation generated by the topic appears to be responsible for the strength of the verbal behavior which displaces it. Chapter 24. In the field of emotion, a more specific form of doing something else may be especially effective. Emotions tend to fall into peer, into pairs, fear and anger, love and hate, according to the direction of the behavior which is strengthened. We may modify a man's behavior in fear by making him angry. His behavior is not simply doing something else. It is in, sense, in a sense doing the opposite. The result is not prepotency, but algebraic summation. The effect is exemplified in self-control when we alter an emotional predisposition by practicing the opposite emotion, reducing the behavioral pattern in fear by practicing anger or nonchalance, or avoiding the ravages of hatred by loving our enemies. The Ultimate Source of Control a mere survey of the techniques of self-control does not explain why the individual puts them into effect. This shortcoming is all too apparent when we undertake to engender self-control. It is easy to tell an alcoholic that he can keep himself from drinking by throwing away available supplies of alcohol. The principal problem is to get him to do it. We make this controlling behavior more probable by arranging special contingencies of reinforcement. By punishing drinking, perhaps merely with disapproval, we arrange for the automatic reinforcement of behavior which controls drinking because such behavior then reduces conditioned aversive stimulation. Some of these additional consequences are supplied by nature, but in general they are arranged by the community. This is indeed the whole point of ethical training, chapter 21. It appears, therefore, that society is responsible for the larger part of the behavior of self-control. If this is correct, little ultimate control remains with the individual. 
A man may spend a great deal of time designing his own life, he may choose the circumstances in which he is to live with great care, and he may manipulate his daily environments on an extensive scale. Such activity appears to exemplify a high order of self-determination, but it is also behavior, and we account for it in terms of other variables in the environment and history of the individual. It is these variables which provide the ultimate control. This view is, of course, in conflict, in conflict with traditional treatments of the subject, which are especially likely to cite self-control as an important example of the operation of personal responsibility. But an analysis which appeals to external variables makes the assumption of an inner originating and determining, and determining agent unnecessary. The scientific advantages of such an analysis are many, but the practical advantages may well be even more important. The traditional conception of what is happening when an individual controls himself has never been successful as an educational device. It is of little help to tell a man to use his willpower or his self-control. Such an exhortation may make self-control slightly more probable by establishing additional aversive consequences of failure to control, but it does not help anyone to understand the actual processes. An alternate analysis of the behavior of control should make it possible to teach relevant techniques as easily as any other technical repertoire. It should also improve the procedures through which society maintains self-controlling behavior in strength. As the science of behavior reveals more clearly the variables of which behavior is a function, these possibilities should be greatly increased. It must be remembered that formula expressed in terms of personal responsibility underlie many of our present techniques of control and cannot be abruptly dropped. To arrange a smooth transition is in itself a major problem. But the point has been reached where a sweeping revision of the concept of responsibility is required, not only in a theoretical analysis of behavior, but for its practical consequ consequences as well. We shall return to this point in sections five and six. Okay, well, thanks for joining me here on uh, in, for chapter 15, self-control. Um, this is a tricky one, and this is a hard one uh, for many of us because we have been, oh, I guess indoctrinated, deluged, um, uh, marinated in language such as uh, impulse control or willpower and that we do have a the way that we think about these terms uh, makes it a bit challenging for uh, many of us to wrap our heads around uh, the idea of um, external control uh, of behavior. And so I hope this gives you some some points to consider and to think about and that um, you're all taking care of yourselves and are well and and uh, coming up next will be chapter 16 thinking the behavior of making a decision okay all right well thanks for giving uh, this podcast a five star review somewhere to get more people interested and more likely to uh, listen to Skinner and learn about science and human behavior. 